as we continue this series. And uh, glad to be back after being gone for two Sundays. And Jerry was gone two Sundays. He was gone to Utah, and I was a couple different places. And um, I know you all are blessed with uh, great preaching from the Word of God. David Dupree the first Sunday, and then Justin Tubbs last Sunday. And uh, pray that God would encourage you. And if you're just getting back from spring break, I know we have a lot of people still. This is probably their last travel day for spring break, right? So they're doing that as well on the way back. But uh, um, we're glad that you're here and glad they'll be hopefully coming back safely here soon. And uh, there's no place like home, I'll tell you. So I, I'm a homebody, if John will tell you. I, I'm not much, I travel, but I don't, I'd rather be home. So. Um, just a couple of announcements I want to make before we dive in here. Uh, I want to do want to acknowledge that uh, Billy and Nikki Connor, where you all at right here, our new, newest members of Grace Bible Church. All right. Welcome. They got the secret handshake and everything. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. And also want to recognize a good friend of ours that's here for uh, 20 years being our friends. They've, they, uh, she's put up with us this, this long now. Um, and that's Todd Wallace. She's sitting right down here with John L. And... Todd and her husband Jeff, we met them about 20 years ago when we were in Springfield ministering to coaches, and we just mentioned this last night that uh, um, John and I, are really, we're not like the rest of the world, we really don't care really if the coaches are winning or not, we just care about them as people, and uh, her husband Jeff was in a very high profile, high intense job and stuff like that, and I remember when we first met Todd going to a basketball game, she couldn't sit in the stands because she couldn't hear, stand hearing what people had to say about her husband. And because it was so intense, so she would stand over by the stands, you know, and John L. would go down with her sometimes and come back up and go back down with her. And we were just there to support coaches and love them because they're people. And we sometimes get that, we forget that, don't we? Um, and uh, so for 20 years now, we've been friends. And they actually moved from Springfield, Illinois to Arizona um, about six months before we moved here, I think it was. Um, so we both kind of went west. We went southwest, they went straight west. But Todd, we're glad you're here and uh, love you very much. Make sure you all, uh, her real name is Barbara, but you can call her Tot too, okay? <laughs> That's a, a little, a name when she was younger that stuck, so. But, well, this morning we are about the mission of God and, and loving people where they are for who they are and pointing them to Jesus, and that's what we always want to be about no matter where we are, whether we're working with coaches or engineers or carpenters or whatever it might be, we want to make sure we're pointing people to the Lord Jesus Christ. So hopefully you're there in Acts chapter 2, and this, the, the title of our, our series is Missio Dei, which is Latin for the mission of God, and that is really what the book of Acts is about, and that's really what life is all about when we boil it all down. And this morning we're going to be covering chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, and the title of our message this morning is The Holy Spirit in You. The Holy Spirit in you. Now, I want to invite you to look. I'm going to read the whole passage here um, for us this morning, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, to, uh, to, to follow along with me. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites. El- 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 and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, 
Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya, around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I, I do pray um, that you would do what only you can by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, you would open our minds and open our hearts to understand what you are doing here in Acts chapter 2 and what that has to do with us. Lord, change us. Make us more like Jesus this morning as a result of our time together in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been given a task that you thought was impossible to do? You ever get one of those tasks? You'll get a few people to be honest with you. Yeah, you've probably given tasks you thought were impossible to do, and maybe even this week. I think back when, um, when I was a young boy living in uh, northeastern Kentucky, in the Ashland, Kentucky area, living in a place called Russell. And uh, they, uh, we, we lived on, we, we built houses on the sides of hills. First, we don't even have hills here. Overpasses do not count. All right. So our front yard was like this. And the driveway up there, and then little, they flattened off part in the middle of, you know, of the hill, and there's the house. And then the backyard was like this, okay? And pretty good size. Um, I don't know, probably half an acre to three-fourths of an acre is what our yard consisted of. And I remember the first time I was given the task to mow the lawn. Oh, yes. When I was about nine or ten years old, and I thought, this is an impossible task. Have you seen that hill, Dad? Have you seen the one in the front and the back? Hey, I'll do the side yards. But the front and the backyard, yes, with a push mower. And not, they didn't have the old flip the switch and it pulls itself. All right, no self-propelled mowers back in the day. Some of you, are, some of you kids are like, what's a non-self-propelled mower? All right? All right, they come like that still. We might get one of those for you, Jonathan. All right? All right, so, and I thought it was impossible. It was just impossible. Well, I found out it wasn't really impossible. I thought it was impossible. Um, and many of us have probably uh, been given tasks. Maybe it is children we thought were impossible. Maybe it is adults that we thought were impossible. And just way too difficult for us to do. So maybe you're thinking about one of those. Let me give you something that you would probably think is impossible. Here's the, here's the task. Swim around the world with no life jacket, no support boat, and no food. When we say... Will we all be willing to agree that that's just impossible? To swim around the whole world, you don't get to stop at each little island. I mean, to swim around the whole world, no rest, no food, no life jacket, no support boat. We would probably say that's impossible. But what if you were able to grow gills and fins? Then could it be accomplished possibly? Yeah, it probably could be accomplished if we were able to grow gills and fins and you're thinking well that's impossible yes i don't believe in evolution that kind of evolution all right um but the disciples in acts one were given the task to be jesus's witness in the world to the end of making disciples and i'm telling you that was more of an impossible task than it is for us to swim around the whole world way more impossible task that was definitely impossible for them to do 
It, it, it was just, they, they, think about this. This was command was given to all these men who had betrayed Jesus. They fled. At the slightest hint of persecution, they were out of there. These men, he then charged to be his witnesses to a world that wanted to kill him. And they hadn't even met some of the people they're going to have to be witnesses to that wanted to kill him too. These men, the cowards, except for John, in some ways. He stayed at the, he was at the foot of the cross. They all fled. It was unreasonable and unrealistic for Jesus to give them this command. They were not prepared. They could never accomplish this task in and of themselves. Yet, Jesus had promised to send the Holy Spirit to dwell in them, to empower them, to fulfill the task in which He had given them. To fulfill the mission of the church, the mission of God, to be His witnesses to the end that people would become disciples and give glory to God. He promised to do that. And Jesus fulfilled His promise. In the passage we'll see today, to indwell and empower them who trust in Him as Savior and Lord to fulfill the mission of the church. And this morning, in this passage, we're going to see that happen. And just to think we're off the in case you think you're off the hook, this includes us too. He's given us the same impossible task to be His witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. To a people who hate Jesus and hate us. That's our task. That's our mission. It's impossible. But good news. He sent the Holy Spirit just like He promised. So let's look at this passage here in Acts 2. I'm going to work down through these verses again. And um, at the end of our time, I'm, I'm going to give us two exhortations to respond to the main principle that's being taught here in Acts chapter 2. Now there's a lot of things being taught, but I think there's kind of one central theme throughout this passage. And I, want us, I don't want us to miss that. So I'm not going to make it complicated. Not a complicated outline. Nothing rhymes. No alliteration. Not seven points in a poem. Nothing like that. We're just going to at the end, I'm going to give you two exhortations based, about what, based on what we learn here um, from Acts. So let's look at the context. First of all, just being reminded of what happened in chapter 1. I've kind of alluded to that. In verses 4 and 5, uh, Jesus told the apostles not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the sending of, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. To stay here in Jerusalem. And then in verse 8, Jesus tells them what their mission is. And I just mentioned that, but look there again in verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Then in verses 9 and 10, Jesus ascends to the Father, and the apostles are looking in the sky, thinking maybe he'll come back. If you remember, Peter, James, and John saw a transfiguration, and he was transfigured before them, in some amazing way, and he came back and dwelt with them. So maybe they were thinking, this is very similar to what happened, and they're just waiting. And then look at, look at verse 11, what happens. In verse 11, basically, two angle, angels show up, says, Men of Galilee, what do you why do you stand here looking into the sky? This Jesus, who's been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Basically, they say he's coming again, so between his ascension and his return, be about his mission. Get busy. Quit standing here. Get after it. He just told you what you need to be doing. Get after it. Well, then in verses 12 through 26, we saw that because they believed what Jesus had said to them about the, the, the Holy Spirit, their lives reflected that in faith 
with action. What happens at the beginning of, of, of 12? He told him to, go, to stay where? In Jerusalem. And in, in verse 12, what does it say? They returned to Jerusalem. They obeyed him. And people who believe what Jesus says obey him. Right? We really, if we really believe, we'll obey. If we really believe, we notice also that you'll be, we'll be unified in purpose. We'll be devoted to prayer. We'll act on God's word. We'll seek out his will if we really believe. And we saw that witnessed here in, in, in the early disciples. And also, if you see in verse 15, the 120 other believers who were gathered with them. All right? So all these things, just what they did, showed that they really trusted in him. In the end of chapter 1, then has these people waiting with great anticipation the fulfillment of Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit and his indwelling presence in their lives. So let's look there at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. What is the day of Pentecost? We've got to know that to understand what was going on here and, and why in God's providence and his sovereignty and his plan that he choose to do this on this day. There's a reason. He didn't just pick a random day. Oh, I'll just pick this day here. There's a reason, and there's a reason he did it on Pentecost, and we'll see that. So the day of Pentecost was one of the Jewish feasts that called for all the people, Jewish people to come to Jerusalem to celebrate. It was a big party, and no one wanted to miss the big party in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Uh, it, the feast took place 50 days after Passover. That's why it's called Pentecost. Penta meaning five. All right, Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover. It was also called the Feast of Weeks and the Day of First Fruits. And it was to celebrate the first fruits of the wheat harvest that God had given them. So in the providence of God, this particular Pentecost day... See, often when we say the day of Pentecost, we're thinking of one day in history, aren't we? We're thinking about this particular day. But Pentecost happened every year. Every year there was a day of Pentecost. So on this particular Pentecost, in which they had celebrated many times before, very similar, God chose to do something that would ne- had never happened before and would never ever happen again on this day of Pentecost. What he chose to do on this celebration, listen, of the first fruits of the wheat harvest, on this particular Pentecost, he would celebrate and bring in the first fruits of the church. And at the end of the chapter, we'll see that he brought in over 3,000 first fruits of the church, those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness of their sins. That's what happened on the day of first fruits. You see why God chose to do it here? So we would never forget what happened. Now next notice that it says about this day, they were all together in one place. Who was gathered in one place. We need to understand who that we're speaking of. Who was gathered together? We know for sure the 12 apostles, and the, 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 there's a new one called Matthias, okay, who was just chosen at the end of chapter 1. These 12 were together, and most likely that they spoke uh, of here included 120 from chapter 1, verse 15. So it wasn't just them, but, but all of them were gathered together. The, the, this, this early group of believers waiting for what Jesus was, had promised, what, what was going to happen. Verse 2 says that they were gathered together in a house, all right, and it was most likely near the temple because of the attention it gets from all those gathered in the temple that are celebrating Pentecost, and we'll see that. All of a sudden, they, they all show up together. So most likely this house, there's no... A lot of people say, well, this was the upper room that they celebrated the Passover, last Passover, last Lord's Supper with Jesus, and the upper room, they were there meeting together in chapter 1. We don't know that. It doesn't say that. It would be nice if that was the case. 
It would be really cool. Oh, yeah, they same room. Like that would make a difference whether Jesus can save us or not. And some people get really caught up into the room and they forget about who Jesus is and what he did. We don't know that. So we want to read into that. They were together in a house. That's all we know. And, and, and most likely 120, about 120 people. Now look with me at what happens as they gather in verses 2 and 3. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them. Now notice first that there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. Let me first of all say it says suddenly. Although they knew that Jesus was going to fulfill his promise and they were waiting, they didn't know when. It, it, it surprised them. Whoa, whoa, now, suddenly. And, and, and it says that, that, that there, was, there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. Now, many people picture this happening. They were in this house, all these people, and this wind came through and their, their clothes are going up in the air and their hair is blowing and they're grabbing on to stuff. And well, there's no literal wind. Look at this. Now, notice the words. It's real important. A noise like a violent rushing wind. It doesn't say there was a wind. It describes the noise. It's important that we see that. It was a noise like a rushing wind. Now, the wind has something to do with it because it sounded like wind. Obviously, like some, maybe a tornado. If you've ever been in a tornado, that's kind of scary. Or a hurricane, right? You, there's this huge sound like a rushing wind. And wind in both the Old and New Testaments comes from the same word as the word spirit. Listen. Wind and spirit in the Old and New Testament come from the same word. When the Old Testament, rock, rock. He's got to go like that when he speaks Hebrew. I'm not really good at speaking Hebrew, but that's, that's wind also and spirit. And pneuma in the New Testament is spirit. And here this, this word wind is pneuma, okay, because it's in, in the Greek in the New Testament. And wind is often used to illustrate the work of the spirit. In Ezekiel 37, when Ezekiel's prophesying to the Jews in Babylon, he, by God's command, prophesies over a bunch of dead bones. Maybe you remember the story, the, dry, the, the valley of dry bones. And he prophesies to them to come forth, all right, by the wind, which is illustrating the Spirit of God that would raise up in them and bring new life to one day to the nation of Israel. That the Spirit would come and dwell inside of them and raise them from being spiritually dead. And he uses the word wind interchangeably, the word wind and Spirit in the same passage. All right, And in John 3, if you were here, we went through John. And in John 3, when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, maybe you remember him talking about this when he was speaking about being born from above, born from the Spirit. Look at what it says in John 3, 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. He uses wind to illustrate the Spirit. In the same way, here in Acts 2, this noise like a violent rushing wind, this amazing sound, like wind, which will remind him of wind, was a clear indicator that the, pre- indicator the presence of God was there. And that the fulfillment of Jesus' promise to send the Holy Spirit to indwell them was getting ready to take place. They wouldn't have missed this. They knew their Old Testament. They knew about wind and spirit and how they went together. Well, just in case they might miss that, look what else happens. It also says, the Spirit's presence 
filled the whole house where they were sitting, indicating, first of all, let me make this point, that all the people in the house were recipients of the indwelling spirit. It filled the whole house, everyone in the house. All right, and, and in verse 2, you have not only, you, you, first of all, we see the audible manifestation of the Spirit. Now, in verse 3, we're going to see the visual manifestation of the Spirit that they wouldn't miss either. It says, There appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves. Now, some translations say it's dividing themselves among the people. All right? And now, again, listen, this was not necessarily a literal fire. <gasps> Blasphemy. It was a little fire. I've always been taught that. Well, look at the words. It says, appear to them tongues as of fire, or like fire, like and as or a simile. I learned that in English at one point in my educational career, all right, um, and, or a metaphor. Um, so he, he, fire is another symbol used in, God's, in the scripture of God's presence in, in, um, with his people. Think about this, Exodus three in the burning bush. You have this bush being consumed with what seemed as fire, but it wasn't consumed, was it? It didn't burn up. And God's presence in somehow, we don't understand this, was in the bush as he spoke to Moses and called him out. How about later on in Exodus and there's this pillar of fire by night that is leading the nation of Israel in their exodus through the wilderness. It signified God's presence with the people. The fire did. And, and here again, we see this tongues as of fire. This appearance of the, of the tongues as of fire distributing themselves was a clear indicator, again, that the presence of God was there and the fulfillment of Jesus' promise of the coming Holy Spirit to indwell them was getting ready to take place, or was taking place. They wouldn't have missed this. And notice also it says, and they rested, speaking of the, 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 the tongues as of fire, on each of them. Once again, indicating that all the people in the house were recipients of the promise of the Holy Spirit. From each of them. Now look at verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Here God, through Luke, says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. All of them. This was no doubt what Jesus had told them would happen in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1. Look there again with me. Jesus gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Not many days from now. This is not many days from now. Would you say that's equated to what just happened? Yes. They were baptized with the Holy Spirit. It says um, that they were immersed. Baptism, as we always, maybe you don't know this, but the Greek word for baptism is baptizo, and it always speaks of immersion. Being underwater or being dipped under a water as dying clothes. All right? Immersed in it. So they were immersed in the Holy Spirit. He, he now dwelt in them, not just with them. Let me say that again. He dwelt in in them and not just with them. This indwelling of these believers on the first day of Pentecost was the first time in history, the history of the world, where the Holy Spirit actually was dwelt in a believer. And it dwelt there, once it came in, it dwelt permanently. He, he dwelt permanently. The Holy Spirit did. The first time ever in the history of the world where the Holy Spirit dwelt in people. And this is true also of people today who know Christ. 
Now, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was with people. He came up on people. He empowered people to fill a specific calling. But all these things were temporary, and never did he dwell in people. Don't get this. Don't miss this little preposition, in. It's huge. It's huge. Something with and around and above and on is not in. And you don't have to be an English major to understand that. It's in, and it's a huge difference, as we're going to see throughout the book of Acts. And again, it is true of those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior from sin today. Paul makes this clear, and he writes to, let me just say this, Paul and Luke, Luke wrote Acts, were traveling companions. We know that. 1 Corinthians was written before Acts. So do you think in all of Luke's time with Paul that they would have a similar understanding of what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, to have the Holy Spirit live in someone? I would say so. And here he is writing, here's Paul writing in 1 Corinthians oops, back here, uh, 12, 13, look what it says. He's writing to the, the church at Corinth, the believers in Corinth, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. He's indicating that every single believer in the church of Corinth had been baptized with the same spirit, with the Holy Spirit, that he lived in them now. He, he, he's, he's emphasizing this fact because there was a problem with the abuse of the Spirit in the church at Corinth. And we're going to get to that later as we walk through Acts. But there was a problem. So he's indicating, you all have the Spirit. Who says somebody doesn't have the Spirit because they don't have this gift or that gift or this gift? Paul says, that's crazy. And this is right before he gets into this whole, the chapter of love. You all got the Spirit, and you need to use your gifts in love. I've got better stop because I'll be going to chapter 14, 15, and we'll go all the way through 1 Corinthians this morning, all right? So... But that's what he's saying. Everybody has a spirit. If you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, He's in you. You have been baptized, immersed in the Spirit at the point of your conversion. Jesus promised in John 14 that when He left, He would send the Holy Spirit to live in believers. John 14. Don't, we don't have time to read it all right now. I've already preached on that passage. You can listen to it on, online if you want to. But I'd rather you just go read John 14. And it, it, it was this, this promise of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, which is fulfillment of the coming of the promise of the new covenant. It's all throughout the Old Testament. And just for an example, we'll look here in Ezekiel. Again, Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, speaking of the new covenant. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. One of the many passages that describe the new covenant that would, the Messiah would institute. And here's the institution of the new covenant, because the Holy Spirit is now coming to dwell in people. Can you all tell I'm excited about this? This is huge. It's a change of something that's never happened before. He's in them. And you, if you, a lot of people want to be in something, be in the in crowd. You want, to, you want the Holy Spirit to be in you. That's what the end you want. It's Him in you. If you want to be in anything, be in Him and Him in you. Jesus kept His promise. And now the Holy Spirit dwelt in the believers. They have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Just like He promised in verses 4 and 5. He actually promised it over in John 14. It's actually been promised all throughout the Scriptures. 
that this would happen one day with the coming of the new covenant. Now notice what it says in verse 4. that they, it, also, it, it uses this term. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Not only were they baptized or indwelt with the Holy Spirit, which the context dictates that this had to happen now. Do you understand that? It's in indicating, it's dictating that the baptism of the Holy Spirit happened at this same time. But he also says, or he says here specifically, they were, that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So what's going on here? He's obviously speaking about baptism. Are they the exact same thing? Well, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a one-time event when the Holy Spirit indwells those who trust Christ as their Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of their sins. And the filling of the Spirit is a repeatable event, and it's commanded. So, this is a unique time. Okay, let me say this again about the book of Acts. I'll keep reminding us. The book of Acts is descriptive. Do you understand? It's describing what happened. The epistles are prescriptive. They help us understand what was going on in a deeper way. So Paul, who planted all these churches, Peter, who helped plant some of these churches in the very first part of Acts, is Peter, and then it becomes Paul, the main characters. They write, write a lot about this, what happened, and help us understand it to a greater degree. So we have them, we know they're baptized with the Spirit, but it also says they're being filled with, they've been filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and it, this initially happened at one time for them. All right, now, now listen. All right, although Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, he's part of this group, here in Acts 2-4, and we'll get to this here in Acts, but he was also filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 4-8. Hmm. So can it happen more than once? Yes. Also, many of the people who were filled here in Acts 2 were also filled in Acts 2-41. Can it happen more than once? You bet it can. And then Paul, second half of Acts, is filled with the Holy Spirit in 9.17, and then later on in Acts 13.9, he's filled with the Spirit again. Can it happen more than once? You can say yes. Yes, it can, right? It does. We see it happen in Acts. And we see it commanded later on in the epistles that help us understand it to a greater degree. And specifically in, Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul explains what the Holy Spirit, filling the Holy Spirit is all about, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Look what he says. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, or debauchery, your translation may say, which is foolish living, but be filled with the Spirit. So he uses a negative illustration to describe what it means to be filled with the Spirit. So, and many of y'all have been here for a while, I've taught on this before, but let's make sure we were reminded of what this is about, and this illustration. So, when someone is drunk or filled with alcohol, Who's in control? Them or the alcohol? The alcohol is. So when someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, who's in control? Them or the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit's in control. This is the illustration. That's what's happening. Well, not only do you see this is this is this equation they're controlled by the Spirit, all right, but also it's a present passive imperative. Oh my goodness. Where are we going with this? He had too much English. All right? Present passive imperative. Present tense indicates a continuing action. It goes on and on and on and on and on and on. Okay? It just keeps going. Present passive. This, now this is interesting. I don't have time to go all into this. But passive is in some ways you're not the one doing it. Who's filling you? Yeah. The Holy Spirit's filling you. God the Holy Spirit is filling you. All right? You're the recipient. You're involved, believe me. And then what happens is actions come from that 
when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'll just go ahead and give you Ephesians 5. So right after this, what happens when those who are filled with the Spirit, they sing and they make melody in your hearts with one another, giving thanks. And it has about the relationship with husbands and wives and children and workers. And this is what it looks like to be Spirit-filled in all those relationships. That's chapter 5 into chapter 6 of Ephesians. To be filled with the Spirit means to be controlled by the Spirit. We're commanded to do it all the time. To put ourselves in a place where we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. How's that happen? I'll go ahead and throw this out here. I don't have time to go into it. Colossians 3.16 says that it's, an, it's, it's a parallel passage to Ephesians 5. If you put them like this, you would think you, he, Paul had just kind of copied. He cut and pasted. And he didn't. He wrote a letter, letter, but it was Paul writing to another church. And he says, let the, the, the word of Christ richly dwell in you. And then what happens after that? He has the same list as he does in Ephesians 5. So being the word of Christ which richly dwelling in us is equated to being filled with the Spirit. How are we filled with the Spirit? The Word of God. He uses the Word of God to fill us with His Spirit so that it changes our behavior. It changes what we say. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. It's to be repeated, ongoing re- repetition of being filled with the Spirit. We're to obey that command. So subsequent to the baptism of the Holy Spirit here in Acts 2, the believers were also filled or controlled by the Spirit to be used by God to fulfill His work through them. And we're going to see what that is. Is this helpful? Hopefully so. If you've got any questions about it, let me know. We're going to spend some more time later, I'll tell you, about this whole subject in a few weeks. Now notice what happened in verse 4 when they were filled with the Spirit. Here we go. They began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. What was the speaking in tongues all, all, all about? What was this all about? They began to speak in other tongues. Well, verses 5 through 11, I'm just going to read them again for us. Help us see what it was all about. All right? Follow along with me again. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And why were they there? To celebrate, what was it? Pentecost. Okay? And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and uh, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya, around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. Now, just to throw out that, where is that today? I'll just throw some of the areas. Modern-day Turkey, uh, modern-day Iran, North Africa, Italy, it even mentions Egypt. This is where all these people were coming from, right? And the Jewish people had come from every nation. It says every nation under heaven. Uh, Let's give some context. Every nation under heaven in which there were dispersed Jews. Okay, to what they knew to that time. So this is not an exaggeration. Okay, they came to the United States where it didn't exist yet. All right, and there weren't any Mormon missionaries here either. All right, and the, the Indians and all that kind of stuff. There was no, there may be some, we don't know, but for sure, maybe somebody migrated over here and whatever, but that wasn't the issue. The issue was the known nations where there were dispersed Jews. Okay, so, and these people. All right, these people is describing now heard the sound of the rushing wind and they came to where the apostles and the other believers were now. My thought is if you look here, just because of context, the, 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 the disciples and other believers must have come outside now. All right, because now you have all these other people. They wouldn't all have been able to fit in this one house. And this is a big old house, right? A bunch of people start gathering and it's close to the temple. All right, because that's where they were obviously celebrating. In verse 6, look, 
It says that they were bewildered because each one of them hearing them speak in his own language. The word language here in verse 6 is where we get the word dialect. Pointing to the fact that the languages or the tongues that were being spoken here were known languages, languages of people who had gathered for the day of Pentecost. This is obvious. They heard them speak in their own native tongue, right? We, we use that word today, tongue, right? Native, someone's native tongue, their language. That's what they're hearing in their own dialect. And they were astonished because a bunch of uneducated Galileans of all people. I mean, these guys were fishermen. Are you kidding me? They had not been to the University of Jerusalem or anything like that. Uh, they, they, they didn't even go to junior college. Right? These guys were struggling when it came to brains on an earthly sense. But they were hearing these Galileans speak in other languages. They knew they had never studied because they hadn't been to the University of Jerusalem and studied linguistics, linguistics. They had never studied. They have never ever spoken before these languages. And now they're speaking them and they're hearing them speak in their own language. This is amazing what happened. That's why they were bewildered and like, oh my goodness, what's going on here? And, and verse 9 through 11 gives a list of the languages, which I mentioned these were these people were from. Also notice the content of the message being spoken in, 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 these, in these languages in the verse 11. It says, we hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. The message was not some foreign message about a God they'd never heard of. But a message about the one true God they had heard about their whole lives. Oh my goodness, not only are they speaking in languages that they, they, they don't speak. But they're also speaking about the God that we've heard about all of our lives. The God that we came to celebrate here today on the day of Pentecost. What was the purpose of God having these believers miraculously speak in languages they had never spoken before? That's important for us to understand. What was the purpose? Was it just to show off? Well, you remember back the Tower of Babel? Right? He confused their languages. Now what's happening? He's enabling people all in the same place to hear God's word spoken in their own language. It's almost in some sense the reversal of Babel. One day it will be complete complete reversal of Babel, but also this was prophesied to happen when the Holy Spirit would come, when the new covenant would be enacted. Also, Paul helps us understand one of the main purposes for this, this speaking in other languages in 1 Corinthians Chapter 14, verses 21 through 22. In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Very important. So who are these people gathered? They're unbelievers. They don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. So God has this happen on the day of Pentecost, on the day of first fruits. He has these guys speak in a language they've never spoken before. Right? It'd be to me bizarre like me speaking French. I mean, that would really be bizarre. But not for you. Right? Or don't you, you speak, me speaking Spanish, that's easy for you. But not, not for me. Alright? And that's what's happening. And why does he do this? It says it's a sign for unbelievers. And listen, what nation is it for? Initially, the nation of Israel, who'd rejected everything about the Messiah. And he promised that it, one day it, it was going to come. And it, it says that some of them don't believe. We'll see that in a second. It's, it's, it's this, this, so it, the purpose was just so they would see that the new covenant was being ushered in. That was the purpose. 
Later in Acts, we're going to see how tongues was a sign that the gospel was for Jews, Gentiles, and Samaritans, all of them, and they were all to be one in the church. And you see it happen again throughout Acts, and there's a purpose. There's, there's, remember going to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and other parts of the earth? Well, when this shows up, it's saying you're all going to be a part of one body now, and that's brand new too. The church, the mystery of Jews, Gentiles, and Samaritans all being part of one body. So FYI, when I finish chapter 2 in a few weeks here, I'm going to come back and deal more in depth with tongues in the Bible because I know a lot of you got a lot of questions, okay? And, and this passage, though, is found, it's foundational in our understanding of, of what tongues were, what the purpose of them were. Um, and this is foundational. We're going to go to some other places and look, but not for today. I don't want to miss, I don't want to mess up the most important part of this passage, and it's not tongues, I'm telling you. It's not tongues. It never was, tongues was never the most important part of this passage. It's not today, it wasn't then. It was important, and it helped fulfill the most important part of the passage, but it's not the most important part of the passage, so I'm not going to make it the most important part of the passage today. Is that a deal? Good, all right. So, this, just, but for this morning, it's easy for us to see what happened here in Acts 2. We can't miss this. It was, it was that the Lord filled these believers with the Holy Spirit so that they could supernaturally speak in real languages from, nations ga- from the nations gathered on the day of Pentecost. That was the purpose. That was what was going on to these unbelieving Jews. Now notice in verse 12, 13, the response is to what God was doing on this day in Pentecost. Look at verse 12 and 13. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. Some people were amazed. And they wonder, what, what's going on? We got questions. And if you were there, you probably have questions too. What just happened? I mean, this guy over here, the Galilean, the guy that didn't even graduate from kindergarten, is speaking in my language with only about 400 people in the world speak. How would he know? And I came here from North Africa. How would he ever know that? I got questions about this. And he's speaking about a God that I've heard about all my life. I got some questions. Like Habakkuk. Remember Habakkuk had some questions. Right? They've got some questions about this. And they're, they're wondering. There's, there's a, a wonder in them. And Peter, we'll see here, Peter's going to explain it to them in verses 14 through the, most of the rest of the end of the chapter. Um, however, look, in verse 13, but, contrast, but, others were mocking and saying they are full of sweet wine. They're drunk. That's what Peter says. You, you say they're drunk. They're not drunk. They're saying they're drunk. These people were much like the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day who heard the truth and saw Jesus' Jesus's confer, confirming miracles to the truth and they rejected him still. They just saw this amazing miracle. It had been prophesied that will happen. We'll see this in Joel next week as Peter brings that up. They just, it, was, it was told and read in the, in the synagogues and in the temple that this would happen. They, and they make an excuse up as not to believe, oh, they're drunk. Just like the Jewish leaders of the day and just like some people of our day. They refuse to believe. They don't acknowledge it's a miracle from God. And this confirmed what we saw Paul write in 1 Corinthians 14, 21. By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, listen. And even so, they will not listen to me. They will not listen. I'll come just like they wanted me to come. Just like we've been prophesied, I'll come. I'll do just like I promised I would do. And they still won't listen. And this is a reminder to all of us. We can be as educated as possible. All right, we can be like Nicodemus, who was who? The teacher in Israel, it says in John 3. 
and still not get it. Because there has to be a work of the Holy Spirit in our heart in order to get it. In order for the light to go on so that we might believe. I mean, if, if 17 people stood up and started speaking another language right now, and there's unbelievers in this room, if the Holy Spirit wouldn't work on, in their heart, they would say something like, that guy's drunk. What's wrong with that guy? This team you lose in the NCAA tournament yesterday? What's going on? He's crazy. But if God was working in their heart, they'd whoa. What's going on? It's I like that through all the scripture. Well, so what? So what? Some really good information, exciting things happen in the early church here. Spirit comes. They're baptized with spirit. They're filled with the spirit. They speak in other languages and people hear it and they go, wow, this is amazing. Some people say, no, so what? Big deal. What's that have to do with you and me today? Don't we want to know that? I want to know that. It has everything to do with us. For the main purpose of Jesus giving us the Holy Spirit is so we can fulfill the mission of the church. To be his witnesses to the end of making disciples. That's the main reason he gives us the Holy Spirit, to dwell in us. So through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the believers in Acts 2, he enabled them to be his witnesses to the end of making the disciples from people from all over the world. That was the purpose. And you see that in Acts 1.8. You'll receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you. What? So you will be my witnesses. That's the main purpose. World evangelism is the ultimate reason why God gave the Holy Spirit for his glory. Do you hear that? World evangelism is the main reason God gave the Holy Spirit. He didn't mainly give us the Holy Spirit so that we could use our spiritual gifts in the church. He gave us our spiritual gifts through the power of the Holy Spirit to live us so we could use them in the church for the building of the church so the church could be the witness to the world. He didn't mainly give us the gifts of the Holy Spirit so we could live out our relationships in a godly manner. Husband and wives, our relationship with our children, our relationship with our community and our world. But he did give us those, didn't he? So that we could be witnesses that Jesus came to save the seek and save those who were lost. That's why. Because it's not ultimately about us, is it? It's about him and about his plan to, to rescue people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation through the blood of the Lamb. That's what it's about. It's not ultimately about these other things that happen because they all come back to the one thing, the purpose of giving the Holy Spirit was so we could fulfill the mission of the church. It's an impossible task, but he's given us all that we need to fulfill it. He's given us the person of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, to indwell us, to live in us. Two exhortations, I promise, based upon the main theme of this passage. First of all, for those of you who are standing on the outside and the Holy Spirit does not dwell in you, you've never, ever said, God, you're holy. You're the Lord of the earth. You're the creator of all things. And you've called me to be perfect, to glorify you in all things. And I'm sinful. And God, I can't do that. I'm guilty. And I deserve the payment for my sin. I deserve hell. But I know that you sent your Son, God the Son, to die in my place so that he might pay the penalty of my sin, that I might be forgiven. If you're in that place today, then my exhortation to you is repent and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior today. If that's already happened to you, then the Holy Spirit lives in you. Don't forget that the Holy Spirit lives in you now. 
You've been given everything you need to fulfill the impossible task God gave you. Jesus took the impossible with the giving of the Holy Spirit and made it possible. So my exhortation to you and to me is to be filled with the Spirit for fulfilling, of the world, for fulfilling the world evangelism. Be filled with the Spirit for fulfilling the, the, the goal of world evangelism. Be filled with the Spirit. Remember, it's a command. We open ourselves up to God. We open ourselves to the Word. He fills us. And it changes our lives so that we can be His witnesses. Isn't that good news? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your Word. Thank you for God the Holy Spirit. Father, what a gift that is. Thank you for your Son, God the Son, who died in our place, that we might be made right with you and then be given the Holy Spirit to indwell us. And Lord, I pray that many people here this morning who do not know you, who have never trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior from sin, where they would do that now. You would work in their heart, open their heart, open their mind to receive the gift of your Son and then receive the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. For those of us who have, Lord, I pray that we would obey your command to be filled with the Spirit so we might fulfill the purpose of the church, which is ultimately world evangelists, to be witnesses to the end of making disciples for your glory. Help us, we pray.